If you have your Bibles, open them to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to be beginning in... Our text today is verses 12 through 26. And um, I'm only going to read the first verse to start us off. We'll read it throughout and spend time in it throughout. Uh, But... Uh, And then we will pray. The title of the series that we began last Sunday is Slaves of Christ, the Message of Philippians. Uh, And the subtitle for today's message is Surprising God, Surprising Paul. And um, if you would read with me, chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 12. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we recognize the reality that it takes a miracle to hear and understand the gospel. And yet every week we come desiring to see the mystery of the gospel more plainly. And so every week we need a miracle. We need that miracle that occurs in our hearing when you help us to understand the mysteries of the gospel. And so we ask you to do that once again this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> in February of 2016, Time Magazine featured articles about Alzheimer's disease and related aging issues. A good bit of ink was spilt on the kinds of things people do in order to live longer. There are pills and exercise, diet and meditation, and strange new plans to join brains to computers to prolong uh, memory even beyond the life of the body itself. Yet despite all those efforts, they pointed out, death will still come to us all. One article, after describing the various ways people cope with that fact, ended with this, quote, Of course, death, even for the most transcendent among us, will never be a thing to be anticipated with joy. In some ways, it's life's great punchline. An annihilation of the self. At the point where that self has gotten wiser and better than it's ever been before. Christianity would say something else. That Christianity came into the world and declared that the self does not get annihilated and that the self remains, and that still stands in stark contrast to the various religions of the world. Evidently, Paul was more transcendent than anyone that time interviewed. And Paul expects that believers, all believers, would be the same. Paul not only was able to anticipate death with joy in our text today, he also embraced life, not as something to be grasped onto and preserved at all cost, but as something to be given away on behalf of others. Paul wants the Philippians to know something. Notice, if you were with us in our series in Thessalonians, Paul, in Thessalonians, we frequently notice he would say things like, you yourselves know, or you already know, or you may recall when I was there, I told you. But this is quite the opposite. He's, he's saying, I want you to know. In other words, he doesn't expect that they already know this, but he knows that they need to know this. I want you to know, brothers and sisters. 
This Philippian church had supported Paul's gospel advancing ministry, uh, gospel advancing ministry from day one. From the time they were said they were a poor church, but they continued to send support to Paul wherever he went. Now, according to chapter four, at some point that had waned because of circumstances, and we don't know exactly what those circumstances were, but it had waned. Then it had been renewed. And they had begun doing it again. But his imprisonment, no doubt, concerned them. And it may have seemed to them that his imprisonment meant that the gospel's advance had been stopped. Marcus Bachmule, and I just use this quote because I wanted to say his name, um, <clears throat> said, quote, Some may have regarded Paul's imprisonment as invalidating his ministry. Or at least rendering him passe. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's in prison. What kind of ministry is that? Paul declares that despite appearances, the gospel is growing and advancing. They likely expected to hear from a Paul when they got this letter who was downcast. Or at least... A Paul focused on himself and his own needs, his own pains as a prisoner. But instead, they they find a Paul who is joyful. A Paul who is joyful in the midst of his prison. As Karl Barth commented on this text, quote, "To to the question of how it is with him, an apostle must react with, information as to how it is with the gospel. That's exactly what Paul does. Because how it is with the gospel is how it is with him. And that's how it should be with us. Amen? Why is Paul joyful? Why is he joyful? Because the gospel is advancing. And Paul describes three specific ways that His imprisonment is advancing or will advance the gospel. See, it's not just enough to say, oh, Paul was joyful in the midst of his bad circumstances, therefore you need to be joyful in the midst of your bad circumstances. I mean, you might just leave and say, well, I'll try. I'll try harder. And you try to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you're not going to get anywhere. It'll be frustrating. So rather, Paul tells us exactly why he's joyful, the reasons he's joyful, and then when we begin to see what he's describing, and we understand life through that grid, then we too can be joyful in various circumstances of life. So Paul gives us three ways that his imprisonment is advancing uh, or will advance the gospel. Number one, the the gospel is reaching the heart of the empire. I'm I'm talking about the Roman Empire, not the Star Wars Empire. History lesson there. Uh, So the empire, the gospel is reaching the heart of the empire. Uh, Secondly, many others have begun preaching Christ And thirdly, Paul knows how God works in salvation. So let's explore these, and we'll begin under the first heading. The gospel is reaching into the heart of the empire. Verse 13, if you would read with me. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. You may remember from our series in the book of Acts. Maybe you don't. Um, But in the book of Acts, the gospel goes out. It starts in the capital city of 
Israel, historically Jerusalem. It goes to Samaria in the very next step, which was the uh, historic capital city of the northern kingdom. And then when it goes into the world throughout the book of Acts, there's, there's this narrative painting being painted for us of how the gospel keeps going to both religious capitals and political capitals and, as it were, circles them and surrounds them and attacks them. And it goes in and it conquers in all of those places. Because Christ is seated as Lord over everything in heaven and in earth and the book of Acts is displaying that fact to us. And in light of that, when we read this here in Philippians chapter 1, which is occurring really, uh, it's being written at essentially the end of the book of Acts, at least according to most scholars. That, That time frame when Paul's in prison, chapter 28 of the book of Acts, sometime after that. And when we read here that Paul says that it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard, that it's literally the praetorian guard. It's a particular army that he's referencing here. And it should draw our attention if we were able to hear things through the same wavelength that the Philippians were hearing them. You know, the same frequency that they heard on. If we heard on that frequency, we'd go, oh, the Praetorian Guard, really? It would stand out to us. You know, say, why would it stand out? Well, I'm glad you asked. It would stand out because the Praetorian Guard, yes, it was an army. It was not just any army. The Praetorian Guard was the highest paid army. Why were they the highest paid army? Well, they were the highest paid, and they were paid by Caesar himself, and many of the members eventually became part of Caesar's household through, we wouldn't think of it as adoption, but it was legal adoption in their day. You see, you've got to imagine, the Roman Empire was vast. There were not airplanes. They did not have Air Force One or Six or whatever it would have been. They they had various rulers in places, governors and localized kings and various rulers. And you can think of King Herod or Pilate in the story of the Gospels in that region. But all over, they, they had these various rulers. And these rulers needed armies to keep peace in the region and to make sure that everybody was kept. So... But if, but if other kings and rulers have armies, what else could they do? Rise up against the emperor and take over. Great solution. I'll hire my own armies and send them because now my army can be there to keep the peace and keep an eye on this ruler. And they're very loyal to Caesar because, of course, they get paid more than anybody else. Right? And, and, and of course, they're part of his household. I mean, that means they're under his patronage. I mean, that, that, that's huge for them in the grand scheme of things. And so, Paul, wherever he is, and most scholars would say that Paul was in Rome, some say Ephesus at an earlier time period, and some say at a much later time period in Caesarea. There's a lot of speculation there. I suspect he was in Rome, but it doesn't fundamentally matter, because wherever he was, he was at the center of the empire, because even if he wasn't in Rome, he was at Caesar's household. He was, he was in the center. He was with the Praetorian Guard. And now the gospel is in the middle of the hornet's nest. It started in Jerusalem. And now it's made its way right to the emperor's household itself. He hints at this again later in the, the letter. To the effect of this in chapter 4. When he's giving greetings. And he says, oh, uh, those from Caesar's household send their greetings. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> it's working. I can't help but think that that he knew what he was doing when he said that. 
speaking about the advance of the gospel. Because right here, the whole praetorian guard is hearing about the gospel. And evidently, if people in Caesar's household are sending greetings, that tells you that it's having an impact. So that what you have are are praetorian guard soldiers who are now becoming loyal to Jesus Christ instead of Caesar. Imagine that. And without the pay. What a crazy notion. Remember, Paul's gospel is the declaration that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. That Jesus, not Caesar, is the Son of God. That Jesus, not Caesar, is the bringer of peace. That Jesus, not Caesar, is the giver of justice. That Jesus, not Caesar, is the King. And when Paul, what, did he, what does he describe his proclamation as? I preach Christ and what? Him crucified. What, what does that mean to a Roman? It means, I preach Christ, a political enemy of the empire. Because crucifixion was reserved for political enemies of the empire. That was the death reserved for those who were political enemies, insurrectionists, like Barabbas, of the empire. Rightly or wrongly, in other words, in the minds of the Romans, and you can make the defense, he was innocent, he was all this, you can tell the story. In the minds of the empire, they hear crucified, they think political enemy of Caesar. Uh, Imagine how that affected the gospel's advance into Rome. It was not culturally acceptable to proclaim A king, Christ, Jesus as a king, who was a political enemy of Rome. Not particularly good for your advancement in society, if you understand. And that's what what Paul preached. So Paul is saying, look at what my imprisonment has accomplished. The gospel is now right in the middle of the hornet's nest. The the capital of all capitals. I mean, we may have done Jerusalem. We may have done this. But in the present world of that time, the center of all things was Rome. And here we are. The gospel is advancing. And how was it conquering this capital? How, How was the gospel conquering the capital? Through my chains. Let me have a discussion about whether he was literally in chains... Or, or whether that's a euphemism for being in prison because he was a Roman citizen. Maybe he wouldn't have been in chains. doesn't matter at the end of the day. It's, it's, the fact is, he's saying through his imprisonment, the gospel is now reaching the center of the, in, in, the empire. Now, when the gospel goes to places of power, people talk. And that's what Paul says is happening. The news of Paul being in chains for the gospel is traveling deep into enemy territory. Who is this man that is standing up to Caesar by proclaiming Jesus Christ is Lord? And they began to spread that message of what he was talking about. And it was working. Hence, the reference I referred to earlier about the uh, God's people here send greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household in chapter 4. Through the church. So, so through Paul's change, but also through the church and how it is affecting them. And that leads to our second point. Not only is the gospel reaching the heart of the empire. Secondly, many have begun preaching Christ as an effect of Paul's imprisonment. Read with me beginning in verse 14. 
And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Because of this, I rejoice. Whatever city Paul's in, we'll say Rome for the sake of discussion here. The believers in that locale, probably meeting in various house churches throughout the city, are beginning to speak the gospel more boldly. And that will affect the empire. If it's Rome, that will really affect the empire because it's right there at the seat of power. And now the citizens are being equipped with the gospel. This is how the gospel will conquer Rome. This is how the gospel will conquer Tampa Bay. When we more boldly begin speaking the gospel wherever we are. Paul's imprisonment mobilized people to speak the gospel that had been caught up in divisions rather than in gospel advance. You see, we learn later in the letter, we're not there yet, but in chapter 2 and chapter 4, that part of Paul's purpose in this letter is to get their focus on gospel advance because right now their focus is on divisions and, and, and rivalries and ambitions and, and, they're, and they're, they're quarreling with one another instead of having their focus on gospel uh, uh, advance. And so he wants them to get their attention on the gospel advance because that's the thing that should unify us together. And so he's turning their attention there. Jesus said over in John's gospel, you might be familiar with these verses. It's a a well-known verse. Chapter 12, verse 24 and 25. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. And, and of course, we know that Jesus is referring to his crucifixion, right? He's the seed, he's got to fall to the ground and die. But we can't stop there. Because Jesus doesn't stop there. Listen to what else he says. Anyone, not just me, anyone who loves their life will lose it. And anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In other words, yes, I'm a seed that will fall to the ground and die when I go to the cross. And you're called to join me in that. Paul evidently believes that to be believes this to be true both of Jesus and how the cross produced many seeds and of his own imprisonment and how it's going to advance the gospel. Paul may be imprisoned, but the gospel is multiplying. Jesus over in John's gospel and Paul right here in Philippians, they are telling all of us that we too need to fall to the ground and die in order that the gospel might advance. Paul is not focused on their motives, but on their content. How do we know the difference between good motives and bad? How would that be sorted out? Well, a couple of things to be noted. One, uh, 
chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. And we're going to look at those verses again. I, I told you last week, that's kind of the, the heart of this letter. The, the blood flows from chapter 2, verses 6 through 11 to the rest of this letter. And, and, and that's where the life of this letter comes from. So we're going to look at that again. We're going to look at it every week in all probability, just to keep it fresh in our minds as we look at it. But, but there we see what Christ, and when we get to that text more, we get to look at it more, we'll see that how it unfolds for us what uh, selfish ambitions are versus uh, you know, true or right. But the bottom line is, is it's, it, it, it's really a, that ambition that grows out of humility and love and, and, and that, that we are looking for. And in chapter 3... Uh, Paul does make sure we know that content does matter because there he addresses those who are preaching a false message, but not here. Paul knows that Christ being exalted is the bottom line, and he also knows who are we to sort out motives. Who are we to sort out motives? We're not the seer of all. Only God sorts out motives at the end of the day. So, the gospel is reaching the heart of the empire, Many others have begun preaching Christ, so Paul's taking great joy. But there's a third reason why Paul sees this as gospel advance, and therefore he is joyful. Paul knows how God works in salvation. Paul knows how God works in salvation. Read with me beginning in verse 18, uh, the, the very end of verse 18. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. So now he's going to give us another reason for, another reason why he's, Filled with joy. Another reason why he's rejoicing. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me, this imprisonment, will turn out for or result in my deliverance. Now, don't worry. It's going to appear like I'm ignoring some part of this verse for a moment. But I'm coming back to it at the end, okay? So I'm going to skip over what what is obvious here, the prayers and the provision of the Spirit to get to this other, and then we're going to come back and address that. First, notice the irony in the statement itself. My captivity turns out for deliverance. Those are opposites. How can captivity turn out for deliverance? I mean, they're opposites, right? I mean, that doesn't make any logical sense to us. Why why it's so counterintuitive. And the, the reason is, is that Paul has a master story, as we talked about last week. And that master story is Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Everything in the letter grows out of that. So let's read it. And I want to add one more verse to it this week, and that's the introductory verse 5 to Philippians 2. Because this helps us understand why Paul knows that it turns out for his deliverance. Read with me, beginning in verse 5. In your relationships with one another... Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, you could read, although he was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant or slave, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, have this thinking in you 
as a community of believers, in your relationships with one another, as the, the NIV puts it, and I like that it captures the sense of the Greek very clearly. It, it's not this, you know, you personally have this thinking, this is some sort of individual thing you go do. You couldn't do that. In your community, have this way of thinking. The same way of thinking, the mindset that Christ Jesus had. And, and what is this way of thinking that Christ Jesus had? That's a fair question, right? He's telling us to have it. What is it? Well, he, he tells us, and he says, in effect, although being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, something to be clung on to for all that it was worth. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a slave, doulos, slave, being made in human likeness. In effect, it's as if Jesus, through the gospel, is saying, hey, even though I am God, And your idea of God is that God trumps everything by just conquering by sheer power and might. That's who you think God is. He comes in and he trumps everything and he conquers sheer power. End of discussion. That's your idea of who God is. And I am God, but I will not live by your idea of God because that would be idolatry. You worship an idol. That's not the real God. So let me show you who the real God is. And I'm going to do so by humbling myself and taking the form of a slave. Becoming a human. That's the form of a slave. I'm going to lower myself. Why? Because that is what God is truly like. The gospel is the story of how God made himself known to us. It's the story of how God made himself known to us. That's what the gospel is. And, see, we, we, we tend to think that what Philippians 2 is thinking, a lot of commentaries go there. But here's how we generally cast it. Is Jesus, even though he was God, he laid aside his attributes as God, and he became a person. Have you heard this story presented this way before? He laid aside his attributes as God and became a person, and therefore the way the things he did and acted were not like God, but they were like a person. That misses the point altogether. The story of the gospel is not how Jesus hid God from us. The story of the gospel is how Jesus revealed God to us. Jesus incarnating himself is not the veiling of God, it's the unveiling of God. Jesus humbling himself is the revelation of God. And what Paul is recognizing, and what he's wanting the Philippians to recognize, and what he wants us to recognize is that we are called to become like Christ, which means like God, which means we too take on this very nature of a servant. Become obedient even unto death, etc. When we cultivate that mindset among us, we too will show show the world what God is truly like. 
You see, that's how we show the world what God is truly like. Yes, we preach the gospel, absolutely. I'm not, I'm not saying, you know, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Baloney, it's always necessary to use words. But there was a point in that, which is to say, you better not only use words. You better use your life. You better live. You better embody the gospel. Because to preach a gospel that you're not willing to embody is called hypocrisy. I better get back to this sermon. Paul is becoming like Jesus in his imprisonment. Jesus shows us what God is like, and so Paul is becoming like God, like Christ. And, so how did Paul know that this would work out for his deliverance? You're wondering when I was going to get back to that question, right? How did he know? Well, here's how. Paul's becoming like Jesus, therefore like God. And since Christ had been vindicated, shown to be truly the Son of God, and therefore deserving to be the recipient of worship. You see, when he was being crucified, people thought, well, look, God's curse is upon him. Cursed is everyone hung on a tree. God has forsaken him. Obviously, God did not see him as his son, but in the resurrection, Jesus is vindicated, and suddenly they realize, no, he actually is God. This God who humbled himself makes no sense to us, but let's worship him. Every, uh, every tongue in heaven and earth now bows down and worship to him. That's the, the reality. So God exalts him to the highest place. And so Paul knows that if he becomes like Christ in his suffering, he will somehow become like Christ in his vindication, also his resurrection. So therefore, captivity turns out for deliverance just like a cross turns out for life. Yes, it makes no sense humanly, but it makes perfect sense in the wisdom of the cross. Now, regarding how this will happen, Paul's not quite sure. Life or death? You see, deliverance is certain, but will it be deliverance because I go on living? Will it be deliverance because I die and be with the Lord? And that's the discussion that follows. Read with me beginning in verse 20. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And it's as if he begins to think through this, you know, as he's writing. (laughs) For to me, to live is Christ and to die gain. Note the contrast, to live Christ, to die gain. It's going to be important in a minute. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting about Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Now, I I wouldn't pretend to fully understand how Paul conceives of uh, life after death and what happens when we die. There's some hints at it here, but it's not some sort of clearly laid out systematic theology of what happens. But I do know that if I'm going to understand what he's driving at here, that there's some verses in chapter 3, and I, 
just, I'm just throwing this out here for your own time, and you want to spend some time this week in devotions, contemplating these things. It may serve you, and maybe it won't. I, but there's some verses in chapter 3 that we have to understand along with these. Because there are parallels, there are intersections, there are, that, notice the use of some of the same words and certainly ideas, verse, verse 8. Of chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. Now, that's interesting. Before, to live is Christ, to die is gain. They were set apart. Now he's taken Christ and gain and joined them together, so as if somehow he can both live and die. Now, what does that mean? I have no idea. <laughs> I'm trying to figure it out. I and mean, it's like, what is he doing? Well, I have an idea. <laughs> I think it's found in our, our, our master story in chapter 2. That, that's my idea. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead, the vindication that occurred in chapter 2, verse 10. Participation, to know Christ, participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death yet while still alive and therefore gaining Christ. There's just so much there intertwined between those sections. And by the way, if, if you want to find some other places where you find interaction with these verses that we're reading in chapter 1, go over to Mark chapter 8. And what you'll discover is that those gospel stories, Paul's got those in the background all the time when he's writing. They're just all over his mind because he's ga- grabbing words right out of those, the gospel stories, Mark 8 and its uh, you know, parallel texts and others. He's grabbing it all over. Why? Because the gospel is the center of what the church was built on. More on that another time. I just want to give you a taste of just how this, these verses are tied to the rest of the letter and the rest of the gospel. In the end, Paul determines that the need of the church will supersede everything else. The need of the church will supersede everything else. Verse 24 and 25, It is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I'll continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. That's a worthy motivation it is necessary for you. It's not popular today to think of duty as a good reason to chart a course for your life. In our culture, at least as Americans generally, secularly, um, for somebody to do a job that they don't enjoy simply because they need to provide for their family is, is poo-pooed. I mean, that's just like, yeah, who would do that? You need to go find what you love to do and be fulfilled. Duty, responsibility, those are drudgery words. Yeah, we don't want to do that. But Paul says, no, this is more necessary for you. I'll tell you what, I see a lot more Christ-likeness in people that are willing to serve out of duty, out of responsibility. And you know what? If we get to do what we love, gangbusters. That's fantastic. I'm certainly not opposed to that. But if we start chasing that as the end all, we will find ourselves in a really bad place.
For Paul, ministry was about the needs of others. He didn't say, it is more necessary for my calling that I remain. Or, it is more necessary in order that my dreams be fulfilled that I remain. Or, no, what does he say? It is more necessary for you, for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul was willing to suffer for their joy, and he rejoiced in being able to do that. Churches and ministries today are judged by the outward appearance of success. By by today's standards, Paul's ministry would be judged unsuccessful. But when understood through the lens of the cross, which, by the way, also appeared to be a colossal failure. I mean, think about it. Well, that whole deal came to a quick halt. Paul's ministry, however, when judged by the wisdom of the cross, when judged through the lens of the cross, when laid up side by side with that, was actually a colossal success. In closing, I want to look back at those two things which are vital to experiencing true gospel advance. Let's refresh on verse 19 again. For I know that through your prayers... And God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me, this imprisonment, will turn out for or result in my deliverance. There are two related, very related things here which are necessary in order that suffering turns out for deliverance. Two vitally important things in order that suffering turns out for deliverance. So I need to know what those are. Yes, you do. You need to know what those are. And you can't separate one from the other. This is a hill you've got to climb, guys. I mean, it's got to be there. It's got to be there. The first, your prayers. I know you're waiting for me to finish that sentence because that did not sound exciting enough. There's nothing else. Your prayers. Nothing flashy here. Prayer is like plowing a field after a long, hard winter. The ground is hard, the work is hard, and you go home without any fruit. Prayer is an exercise in faith. Like plowing, it takes faith in the power of the gospel to use what is foolish in the eyes of the world to confound the wise. By the way, I don't believe in the power of prayer. I know that a lot of Christians like to talk about the power of prayer. I don't think prayer has a lick of power. I don't. Now, God, he has a lot of power. But you go take and pray to that tree out there, I guarantee you, he ain't going to do a lick of thing for you. There is no power in prayer itself. There is only power in its object. If, of course, the object is God. So we, 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 we tend to get, if we can just figure out how to make the prayer exciting, then that will be powerful. No, no, it won't be powerful. That, that kind of the whole point of prayer is that it's powerless. Uh, God, I'm coming to you because I, I, there's nothing I can do here, so I need your help. Why? Because he's not powerless, amen? But, but we frequently don't know when we're supposed to pray. See, we don't, we don't know when we're supposed to pray. 
I, I was thinking about the Gospels the other day, just kind of taking a broad look back. I'm taking a class in the Gospels, so one of the exercises is to read through the whole Gospel in one sitting and, uh, of Matthew. And, 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 and just, but then also through this course of this class that I'm in, we're just you know, looking at the whole Gospel story. And as I'm looking at the whole thing, it just dawns on me. I'm looking at this going, wait a second. We all know these two stories, one at the beginning of the Gospel, one at the end of the Gospel. And the one is the, the, the disciples are on a boat, right? It's a story we talked about the other day, right? Mark 4. And, 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 and disciples are on a boat, and Jesus is sleeping. And there's this big storm, and they're afraid they're going to die, fall in the sea and drown. And they're, they're crying out to Jesus. About time they learned how to pray, right? They're praying, they're, they're crying out, but Jesus is sleeping. You get to the end of the gospel, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's about to face suffering. And he knows that the temptation will be to seek deliverance from that suffering rather than to face it as he's called to by his father. And the disciples are sleeping and he's praying and crying out to God. See, we live in a world where, you know, if if we found out this afternoon that there's a Category 4 or 5 hurricane headed for Tampa Bay... We're all going to be crying. That whole culture, they may never talk to God another day in their life, but they are suddenly crying out and praying. Prayer on the news, prayer everywhere you turn. Let's all pray that this turn. Everybody's going to be talking about prayer. But, <laughs> we wonder why God's sleeping. You know, what are you doing, Lord? <laughs> but when it comes to temptation, to the fact that we will face obstacles in which we may choose to grasp onto our rights rather than to suffer in order to benefit others. We don't spend much time praying about that. We spend our time sleeping. I'm saying we just generally speaking. I'm not accusing you personally. I don't know your situation. <laughs> Sorry if I offended you. I didn't mean to. I'm just saying that I, mean, I, I know me, okay? I don't know you. I know me. I know that's what I face. I know that I I have to look temptation in the face and I need to recognize that that's when I need to be praying the most is is when I face temptation, not necessarily when circumstances look dire. Now, you know, sure, pray when... I'm glad people pray when there's a hurricane. I really am. I'm glad people pray when there's a hurricane coming. I really am. I'm just simply saying sometimes we have our priorities a little out of whack. Your prayers. Second thing. And again, these are intertwined. God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. You can't have one without the other. This provision is clearly in context a response to prayer. Prayer may not be powerful, but the Spirit of Jesus, God's provision of the Spirit, is very powerful. And what does the Spirit of Jesus do when God provides it? Well, according to chapter 2, verse 13, He wills and works according to God's good pleasure in our hearts and lives. He teaches us the kind of love that grows out of humility that is displayed in Jesus Christ. Listen, when we recognize as churches that the greatest need that we have is God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, we will be a praying people. And we better be a praying people. The way God works in this world is not according to our expectations. See, follow this progression just a little bit with me. We, we might think, if we're believers, certainly, God doesn't mind allowing us to go through difficult circumstances in order that we might grow, and that's true. 
And we might even advance to the place in our walk where we think God uses difficult circumstances to cause us to be conformed into the likeness of Christ. So he doesn't mind, he uses. There's a little bit of a difference there. But then follow this third thing. What, this is what the wisdom of the cross teaches us. The master story, Philippians 2, if you will. That, that it teaches us that the only way to be conformed to the image of Christ is to gladly embrace that which brings difficulty for the benefit of others because that is what Christ did. And he did it because it is in his very nature to do so. Surprising God. Surprising Paul. Surprising church. You see, Paul intended for the church to imitate Paul who is imitating Christ. We read it in chapter 3, verse 17. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have uh, us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. And then in chapter 4, verse 9, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me and seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Earlier, I referenced Karl Barth's uh, comment on this passage when he said, to the question of how it is with him, an apostle must react with information as to how it is with the gospel. But the church needs to do the same thing. Amen? How is it with you? Well, how is it with the gospel? I mean, this is not how we naturally think, but that's how we need to begin to think. How is it with the gospel? How is this affecting the gospel's advance? Where are we at in that? What do you find joy in? I find joy in my grandchildren. I find joy in my wife. I find joy in all sorts of my children. It's just I, I never cease to find joy in my children. But I find joy in the advance of the gospel. And we should all find joy in that advancement. Could we find joy in imprisonment? I'm, I'm still wrestling with that one. I like to think I could. <laughs> but I'm just going you know, to be honest with you. I still have to wrestle through that one. Paul's suffering did not derail the advance of the gospel, neither does your suffering. What, what circumstances in your life have tempted you to think that the gospel has been defeated? Follow Paul. What if Brett Kavanaugh is not confirmed to the Supreme Court? The gospel is not thwarted. What if he is? The gospel is not thwarted. It depends on which side of that you're coming at it from. See, when we, we not only believe the gospel, but when we also become the gospel by embodying the master's story, we too can be joyful and hopeful in the face of difficult and challenging circumstances. Indeed, we will be. If we keep our attention on how the gospel is doing and follow Paul as he followed Christ, we will be a surprising church. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You are a surprising God revealed in Jesus Christ. And Paul is no doubt a surprising Paul. And Lord, may we, by following him as he follows Christ, may we be a surprising church. In Jesus' name, amen.